professor of psychology, Lori Sanchez, teaches what has become the most popular course in Yale University's 300-year history. Imagine if you don't teach the most popular course, how you feel about Lori Sanchez. Um, title of her course is called Psychology and the Good Life. So now scientists are naming their course Science and the Good Life and Economics and the Good Life. And Sanchez says that our intuitions about happiness are wrong. Our minds lie to us by telling us that if we want to be happy, then we've got to change our circumstances. I need a new job. I need a better salary. I need to move. I need to make a change of some kind. But research reveals that what we need is to change our thinking, to change our mindset. It's very possible that our circumstances are, are not what's wrong, that they're fine in and of themselves, but we have missed a sense of what they mean and what we can appreciate about them. So a simple way of, of yielding more happiness in our life is to change our thinking, to not go according to what our mind naturally is inclined to think, but to think differently. Another way, Sanchez says, is to make time for social connections. And she doesn't mean social media. She means personal, one-on-one, -on -one eye contact connections where we spend time with people who we're related to and people who we enjoy. Hopefully, those are one and the same. Um, or, or friends. And on a regular basis, engage in their life. And the same is true of just people you encounter on a regular basis. Maybe it's a barista or a coworker. To, to take time to know that person and to uh, share some of their life with them. That's important to our happiness. And she also says that gratitude plays an important role in our happiness. You know that little tune from the past, count your blessings, name them one by one? There's something to that. At the end of each day to reflect on what today can I be thankful for? What's something I'm grateful for? To actually take time to think of that. She actually has an exercise for her students that they're to write a gratitude letter to take 15 minutes out of their day and sit down to write, handwrite to someone what it is you appreciate about them and what you're grateful for because of them. She says that's important not only for the person who receives that letter, but it's important for us to express that gratitude and to say this is worthwhile for me to do. It has a boost in one's sense of happiness. Well, all those things I've described are things we in Christian faith adhere to already. We practice, or hopefully we do. And so therefore, I would say that faith itself and engaging in faith can lead to a sense of well-being, a sense of happiness. According to this passage, which resembles Psalm 1, happiness is derived from living a life of trust in God. 
Now, for most people, that sounds like a contradiction because we think happiness is related to freedom, our ability to choose what it is we want with our lives and what we want to do with our time. The more freedom in terms of time, toys, and choices is directly related to the measure of our happiness. Well, that too is a lie. It's not true. Because our freedom in the form of independence is really counter to our nature. We were not made to be independent of our creator and isolated from the one who made us and who's designed us to mirror his image in this world, to be in communion with him and with one another. That's how we're made. 17th century French philosopher and mathematician, and I would add theologian, Blaise Pascal, points to this in his work, Pensees. He has this line, I have often said that the sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his room. I would, I would affirm that. As a child, when I was sent to my room to be quiet, oh, that was torture. That was the ultimate punishment. Um, I, I prefer just whip me, okay? <laughs> he says, we choose diversions over contemplating or seeking the truth in matters of ultimate significance. We want something to distract us from our finitude and our failings or having to face the moral and spiritual malaise of our times. In Pascal's day, these diversions included things like hunting and games and gambling and amusements. In today's world, in today's fully wired, plugged-in, overstimulated world of handheld devices, video games, the ever-present screen featuring sports and entertainment, we hardly even think of them as distractions. They're just part of our routine. They're part of who we are and how we function and how we live. And yet, nevertheless, we expect them to make us happy. But diversions cannot bring sustained happiness because their source, it locates the source of happiness outside of us. And then when we're confronted with life's perplexities and miseries, we fail to understand our true condition or know how to pursue higher realities that might actually provide our true source of happiness. Pascal says that if that were the case, we would be bored and boredom would drive us to seek some more solid means of escape. But diversion passes our time and brings us imperceptibly to our death. Well, aren't you glad you came today to hear that? Isn't that just... Well, it's not over. There's more. A friend recently called my attention to a blog written by Ahmed Safi at the website On Being. This, site, this website and its corresponding public radio show and podcast pursues questions of meaning related to spiritual inquiry, science, social healing, and the arts. In his article, Safi asked this question, what is it that grounds us? 
What anchors us? What roots us? Is it family? Is it our family that, that really is our ground of being? Is it our reputation that we've worked on for years and built up and, and, and protect and reinforce? Or is it our social connections, our, our network of relationships that helps define us and secures our lives? I dare say because you're here today that many of us would say faith is what roots us. But have you ever thought to ask, what is it that roots faith? Is faith something we include in our lives the same way we do our family, our activities, and our possessions? Or is it at the core? Is it really the hub, the marrow of our being that determines everything else? This passage in Jeremiah, which reflects the wisdom tradition of Middle Eastern thought, compares a life of faith in God to that of a life of faith in oneself. A life lived in communion with the living God versus a life that keeps God at a distance or off the radar entirely. The amazing thing about this passage compared to its counterpart, Psalm 1, is Psalm 1 makes it about blessed are the righteous or happy are the ones who who devote themselves to meditating on the law of God, the word of God, and planning it in their hearts, versus those who, who are sinners and sit in the, and associate with scoffers and people who deny God's existence or let God in at all. Um, you see, in Psalm 1, it's a contrast between the faith community and those who live without it. But in Jeremiah's passage, both... People are within the faith community. Both examples. It's not so much that someone denies God, but, they, but God doesn't have a place, a central place. God isn't the root of the root of their faith. He addresses people like us, people who believe God exists, but nevertheless has little to do with our daily lives, with each and every moment of our lives. In this way, I think we're just like the people in Jeremiah's day. We can say God is what roots us or grounds us, but at the same time, we want to keep God on the periphery. We prefer our own wisdom to God's wisdom. We, we seek out our own desires rather than God's will. And we're busy building our own reputations rather than trying to understand what honors God. And true to Hebrew wisdom, Jeremiah decides, I want you to see a picture of what this looks like so that you won't miss it. In a land where water is scarce, the kind of faith that only gives God a nod, that only just mentions God or thinks of God, and keeps God at a distance, it looks like a scrub desert shrub that struggles to survive in a parched, rocky terrain. 
Anybody who's been into the Middle East will see in the midst of a wilderness where there's just nothing but sand and arid climate, there'll be this one scrub of a brush that is wedged in between a crevice of a rock, and you think, how in the world is that surviving? How does it eke out a living? It's similar to the way we look when we drive on Highway 101 and we look up on the hills and you can see the oaks. And they're just kind of dotted. They're not a cluster of them. There's just one here and there. And you think, wow. Compare that to the person whose life is totally engaged with God. That person's life is like a tree that's planted near an ever-flowing stream. And its leaf is full. Its color is vibrant. One is the picture of a dried-up soul that no longer has any expression of kindness or love. That doesn't have any inkling of generosity or pursuing justice. Compare that with the image of a healthy, productive life that bears fruit in abundance and is unaware of all the ways that it serves and gives and provides. Trees are common metaphors for faith in the Bible and other religious traditions. Roots do two things for trees. They anchor the tree and they draw up the nutrients that sustain and give the tree life. In this way, we're a lot like trees. We too need to be anchored and we need to be sustained. When we think of a tree's root system, we normally think what keeps a tree anchored is the fact that it has roots that go down deep into the soil and therefore it, it keeps it from all the damage that happens above the surface or that might happen above the surface. But think of the coastal redwood trees, those magnificent specimens who's, who can rise as high as 300 feet into the air, and yet their root system is quite shallow in proportion to the height of the tree. They're only 6 to 12 feet in depth, but they make up for it in width because they can spread as far as 100 feet from the trunk. Amazing. Redwoods are known to sway in the wind. In fact, one of my favorite things visiting them is just to stop and look up and watch those towers just move and glide in the wind. But imagine what they do in a storm, a heavy storm. Those trees can, can sway a great deal. If you want to really increase your excitement and your... And your um, heart rate, climb up one of those trees during a windstorm and hold on. How amazing then that the roots hold them as they have done for hundreds, several hundred years. Most of those trees are eight and nine hundred years old and some a millennium or two. Some have dated back to the time of Christ. 
when we face the storms of life, those severe times when our lives are put on tilt, is the thing that roots us itself rooted? If what grounds us is our family, then what happens when our family's knocked down by a crisis like a death? If we're rooted in our reputation and it takes this unexpected hit, what sustains us then? Whatever it is that roots us, it's important that that is rooted as well. Tim Keller offers an illustration of the difference of this by telling the story of a man who lost his job because of an unfair action on the part of his boss. It caused Kevin to become cynical and bitter, and it greatly affected his life and his future. As we all are prone to do, Kevin did, he sought sympathy from people. And the more sympathy people showed him as he told his story, the more he felt justified in his anger, and the more his self-pity grew. Keller says the gospel doesn't work that way. Instead, it asks this question, what is operating in place of Jesus Christ as your real functional salvation? What is your Savior? He then goes on to say, Kevin's root of faith was more in himself than it was in God. He was looking to his career to prove himself, and when something went wrong, he felt condemned. He was paralyzed because the essence of his identity had fallen apart. He made his career his self-salvation. Keller says it was not just that he had to forgive his boss. His real problem was that something besides Jesus Christ was functioning as his Savior. Kevin believed he was loved by God, but it had not become for him an absorbing truth that captured his heart and his imagination. It was not central. It was not rooted. What his boss said to him was more real and affected his heart more than what the king of the universe said to him. You see the difference? The difference between a faith that trusts God in everything versus a faith that thinks, that acts like we trust God, but really believes more in ourselves. To see that we're rooted in faith so that we know the love of God in Christ Jesus, not just in our heads, not just words on a paper, but actually penetrating our hearts and then sourcing out from there so that it encompasses our imaginations and everything about us requires that we regularly practice such faith, what, what uh, some would call spiritual practices developed through discipline or spiritual disciplines. Things like, and uh, Brenna wrote beautifully about why we study scripture together, in community, why we form small groups and read God's word and ask, how does this apply to us today? What does this look like in my 
in my life now. Um, as well as prayer, private prayer, corporate worship, uh, meditation, all the things that help cultivate and develop and deepen our sense of faith. These life practices take what is cognitive knowledge, what we say we believe and think we believe, and make it a life-shaping reality that originates in our hearts and expands to our imaginations. May what roots us itself be rooted in God. Amen.